hosting me again. So, so I hope to see you there. Okay, we have been in a series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I have absolutely loved this series. And so I want to start off as we have um, each week in the past probably five or six weeks by reading the Word of God together. So could you stand up with me? If you want to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to read one particular section. The sermon's going to be on much more, but we'll read those sections later. We're going to read Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And this is the thing. Um, if, if you've been here uh, for the last couple of weeks, then you know that uh, when we finish reading the Word of God, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and the audience will respond with, thanks be to God. Okay, so that's your role. You actually have a role in this, not just to listen, but actually respond. So I will finish, and I will say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you will say, thanks be to God. Okay, we're getting there. I'm very proud of you guys. I'm very proud, for sure. Okay, Matthew 5. 17 through 20 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Nailed it. All right, let's have a seat. Well done. Okay, so there, there's some interesting language in there. I'm excited to get into it. Uh, I'm actually really excited to get into it. But I want to take a moment and just recap a little bit of where we've been, specifically last week. Um, last week, we studied the passage on salt and light um, from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been just taking it verse by verse. And many applications can be drawn from the passage. You know, we talk about often salt being kind of a taste and how we can flavor this world. Light can be associated with witness, and those are definitely useful and appropriate applications of this passage. But Jesus, as we talked about last week, was getting at something deeper when he called his disciples the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Jesus was signaling to his audience that this new covenant has arrived. Now, we talked about covenant briefly um, last week, and we concluded that covenant is the mechanism that God uses to reveal and sustain his promises to humanity. So if you're not familiar with the term covenant, that's essentially, that's the essence of what it means. And there are a number of Old Testament passages that reference God's covenants, which if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go on. It's, you can go on our Facebook page or on the video page and check that out. But these passages show how salt was an image and a tangible image of God's covenant with Israel. So there's lots of Old Testament passages that reveal that. And the same is true for light. Jesus prophesied in Isaiah, or Jesus is prophesied rather in Isaiah, as a light to the Gentiles. So salt and light in the eyes of Jesus' audience at this point in time when he's preaching this sermon is a reference to the covenantal promises of his people. And then Jesus makes this very bold statement. He says, you, talking to his audience, you 
are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he's connecting these covenantal promises to the lives of his disciples. Which, by the way, is us now, just so you know. So that led us to this application. Our lives, empowered by the Holy Spirit, are these tangible examples of this new covenant that Jesus is preaching about. We, our lives, we are examples of God's goodness in this world. Are we not? Yeah, some of you are like, I don't know about that. <laughs> that takes way, that takes practice in two primary ways. First of all, through our success. When we are just crushing it at life, everything's gravy, people take notice, don't they? They look at them and they say, man, that person's really crushing it. And in that moment, you have the opportunity to do two things. You have to take your own glory or give the glory to God, right? Now, the Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift in our life comes from God. So you don't get to take the credit, even if you do, right? And here's the thing. I would say that I am, at my best, pretty okay at giving God the glory when he deserves it, when things are going really well in my life. I'm pretty okay, right? I don't always do it. I oftentimes do it, but sometimes I think back like, oh, I took credit for that one. I shouldn't have, right? To the trained eye of the mature Christian, we know that goodness in everyone's life, every bit of goodness in everyone's life comes from God. But to the outsider or to the new Christian, it just looks like personal success. So therefore, there's this other application that actually might be more successful in conveying God's goodness and bringing Him glory, and that, of course, is through our failures. This is not one that we like, right? But when I am redeemed in my failures, God is glorified, right? When He is strong through my weakness, God is glorified. When His grace abounds despite my ability to either deserve it and or earn it, God is glorified, right? So while it is possible for God to be glorified when I get what I want, it is much more possible for God to be glorified in my faults, my failures, and my weaknesses. Okay, Rick, are you saying that we have to mess up for God to get glory? I'm certainly not saying that. But here's the thing. I'm just going to be real with you. You're going to mess up anyways, right? You're going to mess up anyways, and so you might as well give God the glory when he redeems you in those moments, right? Now, there's an important distinction that we noted last week between success and failure. Not everything that popular culture calls success is indeed successful, and not everything that popular culture calls failure is indeed a failure. Jesus, in the Beatitudes, which was two weeks ago, gives us a very counter-formational way of living. A different set of metrics to measure success and to measure failure altogether. And so that's why, actually, and I noted this last week, scholars believe that the salt and light passage is a continuation of the same thought from the Beatitudes. You ask questions like, how does being poor in spirit lead to a flourishing life? The answer is only in the kingdom of God, right? How does being meek lead to a flourishing life? And the answer is only in the kingdom of God. How does being persecuted lead to human flourishing? 
And the answer is only in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is actually guiding his audience and by way of that in scripture, us into a different understanding of what flourishing is. And that's what he's going to continue to do today. So we're going to start by going back to the very first verse that we read today and reread it. Matthew 5, 17 says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Okay, so what does Jesus mean by fulfilling the law and not abolish, abolishing it at all? Now, if you're like me, you have likely thought about how the Old Testament law applies to our lives today. Maybe you've thought about it, maybe you haven't, but I have. I would say things like, yeah, murder is still off the table, right? right? <laughs> and the Ten Commandments, like, we can all agree on that. I, I certainly hope so. But can bacon please be on the table, right? Because it wasn't for them in the Old Testament. So, like, how do we deal with this? The Old Testament law was given to the people of God essentially to guide them and direct them into a way of life that set them apart from their cultural counterparts. The law guided them into a way of life that was life-giving both for their benefit and for his glory. We say that a lot. For our benefit and for his glory. The demands were indeed high. If you've read the first five books, the books of Moses, you know there are a lot of rules to abide by. 613 to be specific, and you got to get them all exactly right. That sounds terrible, right, kids? Yeah, all right. But they set them apart. They set them apart from their neighbors, specifically in areas of justice and sanctity of life and habits of cultivating a growing and healthy population. The law ultimately demanded holiness because the consequences of sin are destruction, death. And when people are faithful to the law, they flourish and God is glorified. So the arrival of Jesus did not signal the end of holiness or righteousness or the work of God to restore his creation to its original design. Instead, Jesus' arrival is the fulfillment of God's demand for holiness and for righteousness. Jesus fulfills holiness and righteousness. Jesus' arrival is a promise from God to humanity, to us sitting right here today, that the world will one day again be set right. Yeah. And sin and death and pain and tears and destruction will be no more. That's good news. Scripture reveals to us what the law was intended to do which again was to guide people into a flourishing, holy life. But it was simply not possible because of the sin in our lives. And Romans 8, verse 1 through 4 captures this perfectly. I want to read it to you. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that line. I want to tattoo it on my forehead, but I won't do it. Okay? I want to, but I won't. And the reason for that that we, that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son 
in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So, again, rather than abolishing the law, because the law is ultimately good, Jesus was fulfilling it on our behalf. And what Jesus is declaring in verse 17, through fulfilling the law, is that he has the final interpretation of the law. He has the final say on what the law looks like and the final interpretation of the law. Then in verses 18 through 20, Jesus makes this bold declaration. I want to read it to you again just so it's clear. Starting in verse 18 of Matthew 5, it says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that in order for our righteousness to be acceptable, it needs to be greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's a problem. Right? What? Jesus, what? The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the people who knew the law and were charged with upholding it. And Jesus is saying, hey, if you want to live by righteousness and that standard, it better be better than theirs. Right? Jesus certainly knows that being more righteous than the Pharisees, specifically in appearance, is just not possible at all. Right? So what does Jesus mean by this? Well, he answers it in the next verse. He says, we are to practice these commands and to teach them to others. Then, then we will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We are to practice and teach the law, not for outward righteousness, but for inward righteousness. And Jesus is telling his disciples and us, following the law as Jesus teaches it, because remember, he has the final say, is a pathway to a righteous heart. Now, this is different than God's imputed righteousness. This is not that idea that you are made right in God by his work in your life. We're talking about righteousness here, right action, right motives. Jesus fulfills the law. And it's demand for perfection on our behalf because we cannot. He fulfills it. But just because we can't be perfectly righteous as the law demands, does it mean it should be abolished? Not at all. Instead, Jesus does the perfection part on our behalf. And then he calls us into alignment with the law through his teachings and practices so that we can flourish. He calls us into alignment so that we can flourish. And the version of righteousness that Jesus is demanding is not at all an outward righteousness like the Pharisees, but a righteousness of the heart. Listen to this prophetic voice in Jeremiah foretelling of this reality. Jeremiah 31 verse 33 says this, This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. 
The next verse says that he will remember our sins no more. God will put his law in our minds, meaning that he will help us understand it, and he will write it on our hearts, meaning that he will help shape and mold our hearts into the righteousness that he demands. So Jesus teaches that he fulfills the law, not abolishes it. Then Jesus says that an outward righteousness, much like the ones that the Pharisees have mastered, is not enough. That's what he means by that. It needs to be greater than that. Instead, he's after a righteous heart. And this is the role that the law in Jesus' new covenant plays. Following the fulfillment of the law section, we get this important clarification from Jesus in the form of six different teachings that compare what an external righteousness that the Pharisees would have had mastered compares it to an internal righteousness that God is leading us toward. Now, I'm going to read these. I'm going to read all six of them word for word. So there's going to be a little bit of reading. I want you to follow along. It starts with Matthew 5, 21. And just know that these are six teachings that are all connected to this very same idea of Jesus calling us out of an outward righteousness, a performative righteousness, and into a righteousness where we pursue the life that Jesus intended for us to live, this full life. So I'm going to read it to you. You can follow along. Starting in verse 21, titled Murder. It says, You have heard it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to the brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is, take, who, who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last, the last penny. Jesus is saying, it is not enough to merely not murder, which of course is a, an external behavior. Jesus is saying that we are to be free of the internal anger that's against our brother or sister. An external action, a heart matter. Jesus is getting at the heart matter. Okay, adultery, let's go on. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. There's the heart reference. If, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Again, Jesus says, it is not righteous enough to simply avoid adultery. Jesus says to be free of the lustful thoughts of your heart. Again, demanding not an external action, but an invitation into a heart issue. Okay? Divorce. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, Make sure to victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, 
But Jesus is saying, divorce is ultimately a heart issue. And before you consider the legal matter, consider the work of the heart that needs to be done. Right? Jesus is not scolding people who have experienced divorce here. He's saying, don't just get the righteous outward action. Work at the heart. Let God transform your heart. Again, Jesus is not scolding people here. He's making examples to the Pharisees of what they were trying to do. They were trying to enforce outward right action while inside they were taking advantage of people, while inside they were judging people, while inside they had their own stuff and they just wanted to point at other people. And Jesus is saying to them, no, 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 no. It's a heart issue. Let God work in your heart. Oaths, verse 33, again, you have heard it said that it was, you have heard it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your forehead, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Again, the righteous person does not need an oath because they will tell the truth. He says, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. An eye for an eye, verse 38. You have heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. An eye for an eye in the Old Testament law was a just response, an acceptable one according to the law. But Jesus is saying there is a greater righteousness. When they slap you on the right cheek, give them the left. When they want your coat, give them two. When they want you to go with them one mile, go with them two. That's the thing. Jesus is saying this is not about external behavior. This is, again, a heart issue. Then he finishes with this one. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. And if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? By the way, tax collectors, not good people. And he's saying, they're already doing that. They're already loving the people who love them. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Jesus notes that both the good and the evil receive the common grace of sunshine. That the righteous and the unrighteous receive the rain to water their crops and enrich their land. And everyone is good at loving those who love them. But Jesus calls us to a greater love. A love for our enemies, which will only grow from a transformed heart. So the big idea behind these six teachings is that Jesus gets the final say, the final interpretation of the law. And it's more than right behavior. It's more than an external righteousness. God wants us to work on the heart. And this is made even more clear in the final verse of this section. He says, 
in verse 48, probably the hardest verse of all, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Does Jesus really expect us to be perfect? No. <laughs> Thank you. Amen, sister. No, he does not. And praise God for that. Perfect is actually an incomplete idea in this section, mostly because of our present understanding, our current understanding of what perfect is. Jesus is actually saying, be a whole and complete person as God is whole and complete. Now, that's, that's not any easier to swallow, but it's a better understanding. You want me to be whole and complete as God is whole and complete? Jesus is not demanding perfection. Jesus is calling us to know the heart of God and to do our best to mimic it. So rather, rather than demanding that we are perfect, Jesus is calling us out of an outward expression of righteousness and towards a righteous heart. And the connection between these six teachings to the Beatitudes and the call to be whole is this. A righteous person cannot build their lives on an unrighteous heart. All of the external effort that we can muster is not enough to cover an unrighteous heart. And even if we could resist all the unrighteous action that we could possibly fathom, what kind of life is it to walk around every day simply avoiding bad behavior with a heavy and broken heart? That's no life at all. That is not the full life that Jesus invites us to. Instead, Jesus is saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed into a new version of ourselves when we encounter the full life. I'm going to read to you Ephesians chapter 4, verses 20 through 24, and it captures this perfectly. It says, that, however, is not the way of life you learned. When you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So Jesus in this sermon, in this fulfillment of the law, and the six teachings following it, is, is inviting us to evaluate our to not ignore the condition of our hearts, but to seek a heart that is righteous through knowing and obeying his teachings. Do external behaviors matter? Of course they do. But it's our heart that Jesus is after first and foremost, and that's because he loves us. Jesus knows that when God transforms our heart, our actions will come into alignment with the posture of our heart. And the invitation that Jesus gives us to allow God to shape and to mold our hearts is the most gracious invitation that anyone could ever possibly give. Romans 13 captures it perfectly. Verses 8 through 10 says, Let no debt remain outstanding except the debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. 
And whatever other command there may be are summed up in this one command. Love to a neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Once again, we see that the posture of one's heart, which is the true and righteous foundation of all of our actions, is defined not by law, but by a covenant of love. Love, which is ultimately the posture of a righteous heart, is the fulfillment of the law. So here's where we're going to land this plane. And kids, you have done amazing today. I'm so proud of you. Jesus is making it clear that the law is meant to form and to shape and to mold our heart into alignment with God's desires for our life and for his kingdom. The fruit of this work of the heart that's full of love, that is for our benefit and his glory, is the very thing that we've been saying is the deep work that Jesus is calling us into. You've heard us say now over the last few months that Jesus is calling us into deep work. This is exactly an example of that, right? Like all of these things, don't be unrighteous or don't simply be righteous on the outside. Let God work on the righteousness of your heart. Learning what it means to be with Jesus to become like Jesus and to do as Jesus did. That's the language that we're speaking through. And here's some good news. You are not alone in this deep work. In fact, sitting around you right now, you just look to your left and your right, behind you, in front of you. There is a group of people who are in the same boat that you are. Sitting before the Word of God as we've done today and as we've been doing through the Sabbath practice, asking God to continuously shape our hearts into a righteous posture so that we may experience flourishing, the full life that Jesus promised. But so many people here, so many people are terrified of being on this pursuit in community for fear of shame and judgment. And some of those fears are based off real life experiences and they're really, really warranted. But I wanna share with you what I've learned along the way. When I'm, a, when I'm honest with myself, which I hope is most of the time, I have so many things that God needs to redeem in my heart that I don't have the business to be critical of anyone else's stuff. Instead, when in community we see someone experience healing and transformation and this righteousness that Jesus is calling us to, we celebrate that. We get to rejoice with each other. And we get to pray for the same freedom. May we be a people that lift each other up as we dig into the unrighteousness of our hearts and by the grace and mercy of Jesus, let him transform it, let him shape it, let God mold our hearts. This is why we're called to follow Jesus in community 
And we're not meant to be afraid. And I know I've had my own experiences. You probably all have yours too. Where you're thinking to yourself, yeah, but, and yes, but. But the alternative is worse, right? Being alone, not together, doing deep work, alone, feeling like I don't, I don't really know what to do. That is way worse. And so again, deep work in community. And here's the hardest part. This is not a quick work. It is the work of a lifetime. And that is why we so need each other. We need the church. We need the word of God. And we need the presence of the Holy Spirit. This transformation will only take place over a long period of time. So, I want to end with this and then we're going to take communion. If you're not sure where to start with this deep work, if you're not sure what to do with this call to righteousness, right? Jesus started his sermon by saying, this is how people flourish. And there were, there were these teachings that guided us into a very different way of life. And then he said, but you are representatives of me. You are the salt and the light. You are the tangible covenant. And then Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of the law. And rather than an external righteousness, I want your heart. I want you to be shaped and molded into a way where you experience the full life. If you're not sure how to start that, I want to read you a verse from Psalm 139. And I would love for you to just pray this verse over your own life every day this week. Okay? Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 says this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. This was the prayer of the psalmist in this exact same moment. I want a righteous heart. I don't know how to get there. But guess what? No one does without the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of Jesus. So much like this psalmist, we're going to pray it. Then we're just going to sit each and every day this week in at least 30 seconds of silence and let God do the work you're asking him to do, to search your heart, to reveal your anxious thoughts, to test the offensive ways and to lead us into a way everlasting. Okay, on your chair, there should be a communion cup. <laughs> so this is, speaking of tangible reminders, this is a tangible reminder of God's goodness, of his sacrifice, of his transforming power in our lives. And what's interesting about communion, especially in our context, in our tradition, is it's just a really, really poor tasting wafer and some grape juice. And to the unbeliever, that's all it is. That's all it is. And so you can eat the cracker and drink the juice and it's not a very good snack, but you're welcome to. <laughs> but to the believer, there's a significance here. To the believer, there's actual purpose behind this. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And the reason he said that was he was being gracious to us rather than a thought in our head, right? That we have to recount or even necessarily just remembering a verse. Jesus actually gives us physical reminders of his grace. Dr. Jerry Sitzer is a friend and mentor of mine. And he writes in his 
book on the sacraments that um, things like stained glass windows and the beauty that they have are these tangible reminders. You see the light coming through them and they shine on you. Those were symbols of God's grace in the early church. We don't have stained glass. I wish we did, but we're in a school. But what we do have is we have these things that we can see and smell and taste and touch. And so when you receive this, you are remembering God's goodness in your life. You're remembering the work that you did in your heart, that your salvation is secure, and now he's inviting you into the work of a righteous heart. So I'm gonna pray over these, then you can receive the element and you can stand and sing with us. Lord God, we thank you for these tangible reminders, this goodness in our life that you've given us. I pray that as we receive it, that we would remember you, the work that you did on the cross on our behalf. That would bless us. God, that it would shape us, that it would remind us in our hearts that you are doing the heavy lifting, that you did the important work. Now you're inviting us into a way of life where we flourish. God, may we enter that life. In Jesus' name, amen. After you receive this element,